If you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids club, and in fact, we're still excusing everyone up to trailblazers as they continue to work on our Christmas program. Where did you learn to pray? Was it something you picked up on your own? Was it something your parents taught you? Did you learn from a friend? Did you pick it up in a parachurch organization like Campus Crusade or even growing up in the church? If you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you've heard many different people pray, and in lots of different ways, all to the same heavenly Father who is reigning who loves it when his children come to talk to him. God's word would call us to pray, even pray continuously. And yet sometimes, if we're honest, we don't always know what to pray about. And I suppose this is what the disciples had in mind in Matthew 6 when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. So we're spending six weeks looking at the six things that Jesus gave us to pray about. Six things that will give us a God-word focus. Six things that serve to remind us of our absolute and complete dependency on Him. And frankly, six things He told us to pray about. So we're going to continue in this, our sixth week, to look at these things. And as we've done every week, as a matter of focusing in on it, if you would join me in saying the Lord's Prayer as we find it on the screen, we'll say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now just to interlude for a second, several people have asked me, Why are we not saying, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever? And the answer is simple. It's not in your Bible. See, there's a good answer for you. Uh, Depending on the version you're currently holding, it may be mentioned in the footnotes. And the bottom it says, oftentimes, some manuscripts add this. Which basically means that they're ancient copies of the Gospel of Matthew, which contain the wording, but they aren't found in the most reliable texts. Which is to say that we have a very, very accurate Bible, accurate to the original manuscripts within about 99% accuracy. So the simple truth of it, that's the simple answer, not your Bible. If you'd like a longer conversation about textual variants, I would gladly walk you through it, but it would bore most of us. But just take this, your Bible is very, 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 very trustworthy. So we'll move on. Jesus gave us these words to pray. He said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we're reminded when we pray of these two great realities. That our God is simultaneously both holy and righteous and completely transcending. That our God is reigning on his eternal throne, surrounded by seraphim, according to Isaiah 6, who are singing holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that that's the throne room that we enter into when we pray. And it's God's words that also that reminds us 
that as we approach that throne, we do so with great confidence, according to Hebrews 4, not in ourselves, but in the completed work of Jesus Christ. See, if you've believed in Jesus, according to John 1, you've been declared a child of God, making him your father, just as Jesus referred to him as. So when you pray, you stand before him to pray in his throne room, not appearing in the muck and mire of your sin, but in the glorious redemptive righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel, right? We can talk to a righteous, holy father who loves us completely. And we're welcomed into his presence. And so we pray that. And we're called to pray your kingdom come. Being reminded that it's about his kingdom, not about mine. That it's about his kingdom in my life and in the world that people would know him. And that his kingdom would come to my family, my friends, my neighbor, and to the whole world. So we're called to pray for our family and our friends. And we do pray for the world, as there are many people groups in the world with minimal to no gospel exposure. Every week we've done this. Here is your sixth one. If you are following the gospel project, unreached people group of the day, this morning we are called to pray for the Polish Jews living in Israel. That there's nearly 120,000 people living within arm's reach of the birthplace of Jesus, nigh his existence. So we pray for them that they would overcome the cultural barriers set up in their lives and in their communities to belief in Jesus, that these people would come to know salvation in Christ. That's what we pray when we pray, your kingdom come. We're reminded of this kind of a kingdom priority, that it's the job of a believer to make him known, and that there will always be many nearby and far away that need to hear about Jesus So we pray that his kingdom will come to them. And thirdly, we pray your will be done. Acknowledging that it's God's will for our life that we would be obedient. That we'd follow his words and his actions and his commands. That our lives would reflect his character by leading a pure life. That our lives would reflect his teaching by sharing his words. So we pursue obedience. And fourthly, we pray that we would give us our daily bread. We lean into these last three, these dependency upon Jesus statements. We are reminded that everything I have comes from him. Everything. Not just my spiritual blessings, but my physical blessings as well. I'm completely dependent on him for all of my provisions. Just as God's people always have been throughout history And throughout the earth, we live because he provides for us. And fifthly, we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have also... Why do I always miss this one? We pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so we can pray with confidence. Psalm 139, search me and know me without fear, confessing our sins to our Father who is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, we confess and we forgive because we are a forgiven people. And this morning, that brings us to our sixth phrase. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
And so when we pray this in Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we lean into these realities. That it is the Lord who leads our life. That if He leads us not into temptation, He leads us still. That He is leading us. And secondly, we want to consider what it is What is temptation that he's talking about here? Because we need to understand that to get a key for what we're supposed to pray about. And then thirdly, we want to consider how we're delivered from evil. And then finally, we'll land on how do we pray through these issues. So Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father, lead us not to temptation. So we start with his leadership. He leads us, or rather we follow his leadership We follow Him. As it is described in Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd. And that Psalm shows us the ways in which He leads us. And to be fair, we've walked through many of those as we've walked through this prayer, haven't we? That the same great shepherd who leads us, teaches us about His name, His kingdom, and His will. He leads us by reflecting those things to us, showing them to us, that we would accept him. And so we as his believers accept his leadership in all things, the big and the little, what we do and don't do, the things we get involved with, the things we stay away from. We follow him, and in doing so, we pray that he would not lead us into temptation. So what does that mean? What is this temptation that he's putting before us? And what is the leadership, how is this leadership involved with me being tempted. So we're going to dig into this, but I'll tell you up front that this will be a point in which our English language will fail us. So we're going to have to look at a couple of Greek words, but I will try to make it easy for you. Because if we accept the language as it reads, then we're going to misunderstand the passage. And we're going to be tempted to think that it's the leadership of Jesus that leads me into sinful situations. And the leadership of Jesus that leads me away from sinful situations, and it certainly doesn't mean that. James 1, 13 and 14 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. If you just merely pray, lead us not to temptation, you could walk into a place where you think God is tempting you, and yet that would refute James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Please underline that. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Please double underline that. The temptation, as we understand it, comes on because we invite sin into our lives. We invite it over to visit. We welcome it in, we offer it a beverage, and then we cozy up with it on the couch. And we should be clear about one thing. Jesus does not lead us to sin. We get there on our own account, and by our own desires, and because of our own decisions, and often thousands of them. That's why Paul writes this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with 
those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul writes to Timothy this dichotomy that we would run from our youthful passions. We would run from sin and instead pursue righteousness. Years ago, I had a college student who came to my office. With tears in his eyes, he knocked on my door and he came in. And as soon as he came in, he shut the door behind him and he lost it. He said to me, I can't believe we did it. And then he explained to me that he and his girlfriend had slept together. And he was absolutely shattered by it. As we continued to talk, he shared how this had been their struggle for a long time. How for six months they'd been struggling in this situation. And how for six months they'd been lying in bed naked trying not to do it. Shocking, right? That you could lie in bed with another human naked for six months and not give in to sin? Was he trying to avoid sin? Were they really struggling? No, in fact, I would suggest to you they were asking for it. In fact, they were begging for it. And oftentimes, this is our attitude about sin. We invite it in, and then we act really surprised when it finally catches us. Friends, God does not lead us into sin. He calls us to run far, far, far away from it and to pursue righteousness. That we would be freed from it. He doesn't lead us to sin or to sin's temptations. However, the Bible does tell us that He will allow us to endure trials. This is the other way this word can be interpreted. That it can, He leads us into challenging situations. Things that will grow our faith. And that's the word that Jesus is uses here. That He leads us and He prays here that we be led not into trials. So let's build on that. Let me show you how this different Greek word is used in other texts that we translate as temptations. 1 Peter 4.12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Does this look like a struggle with sin? No, actually it's a struggle with persecution. It's a struggle that will test your faith. Lean into the next verse. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. What Scripture teaches us is that when we suffer, when we struggle, when we endure hardship, and this is not about us making dumb decisions, this is about us enduring difficult situations and circumstances in our lives. We're invited into Christ's suffering, and Peter writes, his glory is revealed. James uses it the same way. In James 1-2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And isn't that encouraging? One, that you would meet trials. Two, that you'd meet so many trials that they'd be of various kinds. And three, you're supposed to be joyful about it. But this is what James writes. And is it about sin? No, again, it's about being tested. Look what he writes next. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let your steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Your testing produces a faith in you that has endurance. 
that your testing grows you up towards maturity, grows you up towards completion, according to the text. And in fact, we find that Jesus has the same experience in Matthew 4. Matthew 4, 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, was the Spirit leading Jesus to sin? No, I don't think so. The Bible would testify in so many other directions. However, Satan absolutely used the situation to test him with sin. And Satan put sin before him. And that's why when he calls us to pray, he calls us to pray that we would not be led into temptation or trials. That God the Son is instructing us as children to ask God the Father that he might test us, not test that he might not test us in a way that we would fail or in a way that our faith wouldn't hold. I remind you of the story of Job, that it's God in Job 1.8 that says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? By the way, I can't stand the story. That's not because it's in the Bible. I love the Bible. It's the fact that I can't stand the fact that God should ever say, have you considered Ben? Let's play with Ben for a while. That's not, I'm not down for. And that's why you lean into this story. In chapter 1, verse 13 and following, Satan takes away all of Job's family and his possessions. In chapter 2, Satan attacks Job's health and so on. And yet, Job's faith stands in God. Job continues to grow, continues to believe, continues to trust And in all honesty, these are the trials that I pray that I'm not led towards. These are the trials that I want no part of. And yet this reveals a tension for us. That Jesus would call us into hard and challenging situations that we wouldn't want any part of. And while simultaneously Jesus calls us into these challenges... Satan is on the prowl looking for someone to destroy, Peter also writes. And so you see the picture that Jesus would call us to a hard place that we might trust him. And Satan also shows up at said place leading to destroy you, point you in different directions, and decimate your faith. Peter writes about this. And Luke also writes about this, recording Jesus' words to the same effect. Luke 22 writes this. Luke 22, 31 through 32 says this. Jesus speaking. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When tempted, we are like Peter. When tempted, just as Jesus says, Satan has come and asked that he might have you. Now you could be tempted to think that this verse is merely about Peter, and you would miss the fact that the you in verse 31 and the you in verse 32 is plural which begs for a nice southern y'all for clarity. Satan has demanded to have y'all. 
that he might sift y'all like wheat. So I've prayed for y'all that your faith may not fail y'all. See, some southern nomenclature comes in helpful. What happens in this is you see the very picture that Satan is wanting to attack you. And Jesus, who is the king, must allow it to happen, as recorded in the book of Job. And in this picture, Satan is asking Jesus for you, not just Peter, for you, that you might be sifted like wheat. And in this case, Jesus steps in and he prays to God the Father that our faith would not fail. Friends, Jesus prays for us. And in fact, he calls us to pray that we would not be led into such trials and that we would be delivered from evil. So what does that deliverance from evil look like? According to Paul in Ephesians 6, Paul writes this, a passage that Christians ought to memorize. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How do you wage spiritual warfare? Not in your grit, not in your strength, not in your ability. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? Because he's longing to destroy you. And Paul writes to us the method by which we make our stand. The method by which we are delivered from evil. And Paul says to us, we'll do that by putting on the whole armor of God. And piece by piece, he describes that to us. So that as believers, we would surround ourselves by, with the truth. Because we've fastened it around our waist. The belt of truth exists so that we would know in whole God's word. Who he is, what he's declared about us so that we wouldn't be tempted by Satan to believe lies. That we would be covered with the righteousness of Christ, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, so that we would know that it is Christ's righteousness that is our covering, not our own works. And that we would have a peace that transcends all understanding because we are, we have our, we are ready and we have our shoes on and we have the shield of faith to extinguish the arrows of the evil one, Paul writes to us that we would know how to defeat the schemes of the devil. Why? Y'all, because he's coming after you. He is asking to sift y'all like wheat. And Jesus prays for you and calls us to pray about it, and calls us to make our stand. Friends, Satan is waging a war against you. That's why Paul uses this verbiage and paints a picture of a soldier preparing to fight. That he would put on the full armor of God and resist the devil. Because every day you're going to face challenges. Challenges that Jesus will want to use you for your good 
and that Satan is going to use to destroy your faith. Yesterday, my challenge was named Claire. If you've got a Claire, you totally understand. My three-year-old who wanted to test her mother at every step. My three-year-old who started taking the very forward advance of swinging at my wife. Now, we had a very thorough conversation about the fact that nobody throws a punch at my wife. And it was an interesting moment for my daughter to realize some language shifts from her mom to my wife. But when my three-year-old dug in, not once, not twice, but all day yesterday, and challenged my sanctification to the hilt. Because in that moment, and believe me, I don't pray for patience, it was all challenged. What does my ability to love my three-year-old look like? And what does my ability to love her in a way that conditional look like and what does it look like to love her in a way that accepts the fact that she is a little sinner and yet god the father loves her incredibly what does that look like because i promise you at moments it was trying to destroy my faith and that's not just an illustration i was at my wits end in this moment jesus was using a hard situation, I mean that totally literally, to grow me up in the faith, and how was I going to act, how was I going to respond, how was I going to handle it? Because in those moments, we either trust Jesus to walk us through it, and we trust Jesus to grow us up, or we allow Satan to win the moment and destroy our faith. We are called to pray, Jesus says, that we would not be led into temptation, but that we would be delivered from evil. Jesus puts before us this calling that we would submit our lives unto His leadership to follow Him, knowing that in His leadership and following Him, there will be a hard, difficult path before you, Christians, don't believe the lie that it gets easy. Joel Osteen is doing us no favors. Your best life is not coming now. Maybe a trillion years from now, yes. But that's in Jesus' righteous reign, not today. Today, you're going to be walking through trials and challenges and difficulties Things that will beat you, abuse you, and grow you up in the faith. And that's what Jesus puts before you here. That under his leadership, you pray that you would not be taken into a temptation that would cause your faith to fail you. You pray that under his leadership, you would cling to him. That you'd believe in him. That you'd walk in him. And then in his leadership, you take what he puts before you, as not as something you can handle on your own, but something that you can walk through, through his grace, next to him, holding his hand, perhaps being dragged, kicking and screaming through the sand, but trusting him. And that in doing so, we'd be delivered from evil 
because we have put on the full armor of God. That's what Jesus puts before us here to pray. See, for years I thought this was just about Jesus making me a better decision maker so I'd stop making such dumb decisions that led me into sin. And I still do that, by the way. But this has more to do with Jesus leading me into adversity and me trusting his hand at work. And so we pray that. That there wouldn't be more on my plate than I could handle. To know that when it's on my plate, I can walk through it with Him. That He's growing me up. He's maturing me. He's bringing me to completion. It's His work in my life that is at hand. And I'm reminded of that. And when we pray this, we are reminded that it is our Heavenly Father who loves us. Who is our daddy, as Jesus called him. It's our heavenly father who's righteous and holy and rules forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You may not have picked up on this. We had a theme in worship for you this morning. It was the consistency of God. Always. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He reigns. And He loves us. And He provides our daily bread. All of it. And He provides our daily forgiveness of sins. And He leads us. And He walks us through difficult challenges that will grow us, that will mature us, and that will make us complete. And He keeps away the things that will consume us, that will destroy us. He leads us. So we pray this. That He would be our God. That His kingdom, His name, and His will would be before us. And that we would see His provision of bread and forgiveness and challenges as right and good, and holy, and growing us up, which is his desire that we would be mature in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, as I prepared this week, I was mindful of the fact that there are many in this room who are going through challenges and difficulties. Things that they wouldn't have asked for on their own. Father, none of us would. And yet, Father, in your divine providence, sometimes you put a path before us that we don't understand. A path before us we wouldn't choose. A path before us that might even seem unsurvivable. But Father, you put a path before us that calls us to trust you. A path before us that calls us to lean into you. To call you our Savior. That we would trust your name, your kingdom, your will that we would know that you have a greater purpose than we know or understand. And so, Father, we trust you. We lean into you. And we thank you. Father, we don't know why all the things that are on our plate are going on. And, Father, we never know this side of eternity. But, Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy and at work. And so we look to you to lead us 
not into trials we cannot deal with. To lead us not into an evil that would overwhelm us, but to lead us to maturity in the name of your Son. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.